you would please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Again, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. A.W. Tozer once wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He says, The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever arisen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceive God's to be, God to be like. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. It's not uncommon to come across individuals who wonder why a person would spend their time studying theology, why they would spend their time developing a nuanced understanding of Christian doctrine. Very often this is true even within the church. Many Christians wonder why someone would spend their time trying to develop a nuanced understanding of something as seemingly obscure as eschatology, which is the study of the end times, or pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. And the answer is found right here in this quote by Tozer. What you believe about God is, in fact, the most important thing about you. This is true not just in the sense that what you believe about God will determine your eternal destiny. As I was digging up that Tozer quote this week, I came across a different quote by C.S. Lewis where he was attempting to uh, challenge and refute this idea. In that quote, he says this, he said, I, I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. He says, by God himself it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance, except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God... To be a real ingredient in, in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in it as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. Of course, I think we all understand what Lewis is saying. And so far as salvation is concerned, he's absolutely right. When it comes to our eternal destiny... What matters is not so much what we think about God, but what God thinks about us. But this isn't really what Tozer is talking about when he says that what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. Yes, I think Tozer would probably agree that this is one of the reasons why what we believe about God is so important. After all, the scriptures tell us that salvation occurs by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that this is the one and only way of salvation. A person must believe that Jesus is Lord. They must believe both in the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man such that they're able to recognize that the only way to have a right standing before God is through a foreign imputed righteousness. They must believe that as God, Jesus was able to offer up this perfect righteousness and die in their place for their sins. Apart from this belief, salvation is simply impossible. And this means that when it comes to salvation... While there is a sense in which Lewis is absolutely right, the most important thing about us is what God thinks of us. At the same time, there's another sense in which you can still say that the most important thing about us is what we believe about God. 
Still, if you're paying attention, that's not really Tozer's point. His point, rather, is that what we believe about God ultimately determines what we do, how we live. He says the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. I'll tell you, there's, there's incredible insight in that observation. You take a nation's laws, for instance, what it conceives to be right and wrong, what it conceives to be permissible and impermissible, and they can all inevitably be traced back to that nation's conception of God. You take our own Declaration of Independence, for instance, and it's all right there on the surface. Where did our founders get the notion that every man is endowed with a certain set of rights which no form of human government is authorized to override? Where did they get the notion even that man has the right to rebel against his government by force of arms, if necessary, when it violated these rights? It's all there in the opening lines of the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Friends, that is an incredibly theological statement. Where do human rights come from? They come from a creator. And where does the right to govern come from? Why can any man tell another man what to do? Did you catch it there? It's actually a little significant. It's not from God in the way that they state it, but from man. Government derives its power from the consent of the governed, and that in order to secure these rights. This explains why man has the right to rebel. He has the right to rebel because government derives its authority from him. And that in order to secure his rights. That's the purpose of the government, according to the Declaration, to secure human rights, to serve man's interests. And so therefore man is free to withdraw his consent to be governed whenever the government stops working for him to secure his rights. This is all highly theological. In fact, it's not just a theological statement, it's a faith statement. These truths are self-evident. If you're familiar with the terminology, they are presuppositional truths. Meaning there's no higher court of appeal that one must turn to to prove these truths. To some degree, we're not even dependent upon some kind of special revelation from this Creator in order to discern these rights. They are self-evident. This says a lot about what the founders believed about God. And this is true no matter what kind of government you're talking about what you think God wants, what he cares about, what he thinks about us, right? Even whether or not he exists, this will shape the kind of society you will create. This is Tozer's point when he says, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. And this is why he concludes... For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Why would someone spend their time developing a nuanced understanding of Christian doctrine? Well, because for the Christian, there's no more important sub subject they can study. There is no subject that will so orient and shape their life according to what they say they believe and according to truth, right, than the study of Christian doctrine. In short, rightly understood, the study of theology is intensely practical. It is even the most practical of all subjects because our theology, more than anything else, shapes how we live. This is a concept that we've seen bear itself out at great lengths over the past several weeks in 1 Corinthians. And it's one that we're going to continue to see play itself out again here this morning as the Apostle Paul tackles the subject of sexual immorality.
I doubt I have to tell you that our culture is and has been adopting an increasingly open view of human sexuality. And by that, I don't just mean with respect to sexual identification. That is, of course, a major topic in our culture at the moment. Society seems obsessed with the idea of sexual identification, of labeling someone according to their sexual preferences. And as you know, it's increasingly open to many different types of sexual uh, preference beyond just heterosexuality. This is in addition to the discussion of gender and the notion that a person's gender is not necessarily the same as their biological sex. The culture is increasingly open to that possibility as well. But I don't just mean that. Rather, what I mean is that the culture is, is just increasingly open to sexual activity, period. Whereas 100 years ago, the notion of a man and woman engaging in a sexual relationship before marriage might have been something that was frowned upon, now it's commonplace. Cohabitation before marriage is commonplace. Divorce and remarriage is commonplace. The traditionally Christian value that sex is something that's only supposed to occur between a man and a woman in a monogamous marital relationship is increasingly considered narrow-minded and old-fashioned. What's the big deal about sex, society wonders? Why are you Christians so hung up on this point? It's just a biological function. It's no different than, than eating and breathing. It doesn't have to be an expression of some deep, committed relationship. It's just physical pleasure. That's all. Why expend all this effort denying yourself something as harmless as sex? Of course, the objections go beyond this. And people like to observe that sex is a strictly private affair that only affects the two people involved in the sexual act, and so it's really no one else's business what takes place between two consenting adults. Even asking one significant other about the number of their previous sexual partners is frowned upon in some circles today. That's none of your business, it said. They weren't committed to you then, so they don't really need to answer to you for any of that. All that matters is whether or not they're faithful to you right now. Others will even try to say that sexual promiscuity is healthy. Depending on a person's sexuality, they may say it's essential to their psychological health. And at the very least, sex is such a fundamentally important part of a healthy relationship, they believe, that it's probably a good idea to at least go out on a few test drives before plopping down a down payment and signing up for a long-term commitment. Of course, the Bible offers a very different kind of perspective on human sexuality. Though, of course, even this is being increasingly challenged by our culture. Attempts are made to say that the Bible does not actually restrict this relationship to the marriage relationship and to the marriage of a man and a woman specifically. Still, such attempts are, are, are often unsuccessful. You know, polygamous uh, Old Testament relationships and all, the Bible still seems fairly clear. From the very beginning, God intended sex to be something that's reserved for the marital relationship only, and that between a man and a woman specifically. To quote Genesis 2, 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Not only this, but the Bible treats sexual immorality as something that's incredibly serious. Yes, yeah, sin is sin. I think we all get that. And even a single sin, no matter the type, is enough to reveal a person as a sinner in God's sight, worthy to be condemned by God for an eternity in hell. But still, the Bible seems to treat some sins as more serious than others. For example, lying is a sin, according to the Scriptures. And yet, generally speaking, lying won't get you killed under the Old Testament law. Adultery will. Other forms of sexual immorality will. There are ultimately several reasons for this. Perhaps the biggest reason is found in Genesis 1. There, one of the first things we learn in the Bible is that human sexuality has an integral play, role to play in God's plan for humanity. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God determines to make man in his own image to serve as his representative ruler over the earth. And after noting that, quote, male and female, he made them, 
Moses tells us, verse 28, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God wants man to exercise his dominion over the creation. And what does this require? It requires man to be fruitful and multiply. In short, it requires human sexuality. And it doesn't stop there. As we get into Genesis 2, we begin to get a glimpse into why God has created man in this way, why he created them as both male and female, and commanded them to rule together instead of opting for a creature made up of only one sex. And that's because through their very different and yet complementary roles, man and woman together begin to reflect the relational dynamics inherent in God himself. In other words, an attack on human sexuality is an attack on God himself. It strikes at the very core of the imago Dei, the image of God in man. It shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that by Genesis 4, as man descends further and further into sin after the murder of Abel, it's noted that one of Canaan's descendants, an arrogant and boastful man by the name of Lamech, he married two wives. Or that by Genesis 6, we learn that at least one of the primary reasons for the great flood, if not the primary reason, was sexual. Genesis 6, 1 through 3, Moses observes, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Why are Christians so obsessed with sex? Well, I, I don't think we are. We're not. But fallen man seems to be. Even the devil seems to be. And that's because if the point of sin is to defame and mar the glory of God, then there is perhaps no better place to begin than with corrupting human sexuality. But this isn't the only reason the Bible treats sin so seriously. In this morning's passage, we're going to learn of at least one other reason, or several, depending on how you want to attempt to break up this passage. What might that reason be? Let's go ahead and read the passage and begin to discover that answer together. We're actually going to look at this passage over the next couple of weeks, and we're going to start this morning by focusing on verse 12 of this text. But let's go ahead and read the entire passage, 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. The Apostle Paul writes this. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. One of the questions that Christians can wrestle with as they ponder the issue of sexual immorality is, what about grace? So, okay, we can see that sexual sin is wrong in God's sight. We can see that sex is only supposed to take place between a man and a woman who's been, who have, who have uh, been united together in marriage. But what about grace? As Christians, isn't our hope fixed completely on the righteousness that's been offered to us in Christ? Meaning, isn't the whole premise of our faith that God accepts us not on the basis of our own performance, but wholly on the basis of Christ's righteousness. Don't we believe that with regards to this question of what does God think about us, 
that it is only when God sees not us, but Christ in us, Christ in our place, that we have any hope of entering heaven. So to that effect, what do our actions have to do with anything? This is partly Paul's point in the passage just before this one, right? Up in verses 9 through 11, as Paul is explaining why the Corinthians need to repent of these various practices that they're performing in the church, <clears throat> he presents this list of assorted types of sinners, and then he observes, and such were some of you. As I explained when we were in that text, Paul doesn't say that because the Corinthians no longer struggle with these types of sins. He says it rather because although the Corinthians still struggle with these types of sins, in Christ, God sees them as something entirely different. They swindle, but they're not swindlers. They commit adultery, but they're not adulterers. They steal, but they're not thieves. And why not? Well, it's because in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, they've been washed. They've been sanctified. And, right, they've been justified. They are now just. They are righteous in God's sight. It's as if they had never performed any sin whatsoever in this because of their identification with Christ. Well, if that's the case, then what's the big deal about sexual immorality. This seems to be what the Corinthians were wrestling with as they accepted this man living with his stepmother into their fellowship back in chapter 5. They don't just accept that man, but there even seems to be a kind of boasting in his sin. Where is this boasting coming from? Well, in part, <clears throat> it seems to be coming from their belief that this is actually an expression of the gospel. It's a sign of how sufficient Christ's sacrifice is that they can engage in this kind of sin, something that is so heinous that even the sexually promiscuous pagans around them wouldn't do it. That they could do this and suffer no consequences for it. I think that's a proclamation of the gospel. This is a question they seem to be wrestling with here as well. Paul doesn't come out and say it, but it seems likely that the reason why he has to tell them that it's bad to visit prostitutes is probably because they didn't think it was bad to visit prostitutes. They thought it was okay. Some of them are more than likely even visiting prostitutes. And why? Well, we see the answer in verse 12, where twice Paul repeats what is likely a Corinthian saying, in what is likely a Corinthian saying that has been adopted and then adapted from the Apostle Paul. All things are lawful for me. In other words, I can do anything I want. I am free now with regards to sin since Christ has paid it all. Now, before you go off and scoff at this thought, and say to yourself, well, of course we're under grace, but that doesn't mean that we're not still obligated to obey God. I mean, we're not free in the sense that we're no longer under any kind of law. I want you to note something here. And that's the fact that in this passage, Paul actually doesn't really take issue with the statement, all things are lawful for me as such. Meaning he doesn't say to the Corinthians, what do you mean? I can just go and do what I want now that I'm in Christ, since Christ has paid it all. No, you're still obligated to obey God. You're still obligated to avoid sin. He doesn't say that. If anything, he actually seems to affirm this statement, but with some added modifications. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Are you hearing that? He, he's really saying, okay, yes, that's true, but... And then he tacks this statement on at the end that's meant to modify the concept. You understand? He's not flat out disagreeing with the statement. He's offering a concurring opinion. He's saying, yeah, I, I agree with that statement, but not with its application in this specific instance. And here's why. 
And then as Paul explains the reasons why he disagrees with the Corinthians, he doesn't point to any kind of obligation, not strictly. He says, but not all things are helpful. In other words, he says, yeah, I mean, I, I could sin. I am free in that respect, that doesn't, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a good idea. That doesn't necessarily mean I want to. You guys see that there in the text? It's like when I tell, you know, my kids uh, come up to me and say, you know, Dad, I can't wait until I'm an adult. Because once I'm an adult, I'll be able to stay up as late as I want and eat ice cream every night. And they do tell me that, by the way. They think that's what being an adult means. <laughs> you know, and uh, in a sense, they're not wrong, right? As an adult, I am free to stay up as late as I want and eat ice cream every night. I really could do that. No one's going to stop me. And yet I don't do that. That's not how I use my freedom. And why not? Well, it's for the same reasons that Paul explains here. It's not profitable for me to do that. It's not wise. I, I used to think the same things that my kids think when I was their age. I thought to myself, I can't wait until I'm making as much as money as my parents because then I'll be able to buy all the candy I want. And you guys know what? I actually do buy all the candy that I want. It's just that now as an adult, I don't want as much candy as I did as when I was a child. And, and that's, to be clear, that's not because I don't enjoy a Snickers bar, right? Like I do. It's just that I've since learned that there are consequences to eating Snickers bars that I don't want. Basically, when I was little, my parents had to control my eating habits. And they did this not to dominate me, but because I lacked the understanding to make healthy eating choices. They did it because I lacked the wisdom to make my own choices. They did it because I didn't understand the consequences to my own choices. Now, of course, I do understand at least some of the consequences to my choices, or at least I'm expected to as an adult, and so the restriction is removed. And yet, in spite of the freedom to eat what I want, I don't. In short, I've learned to regulate myself. I've learned to exhibit self-control. This seems to be partly what Paul is striking at when he, in what he communicates in the next verse as well, this idea of self-control. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Paul has just stated that while we are, in a sense, free to do what we want, that doesn't necessarily mean we should. And that's because some things are bad for us. And then he adds this additional point about enslavement. And, and that may seem like sort of an odd jump to make, but it's really not if you understand Paul's reasoning in the first statement. Right? I mean, some activities are bad for me. And so while I may technically be free to do what I want at the same time, when I get caught in a behavior that's repeatedly doing me harm such that I'm unable to stop that destructive behavior, you wouldn't really call that freedom, would you? You think of uh, the alcoholic, for instance. In a modern society, uh, we don't refer to them as drunkards, do we? like the way people used to refer to people who consumed excessive amounts of alcohol. And that's because in our culture, our society, drunkard seems to convey the idea of volitional choice. They choose to consume excessive amounts of alcohol, which is true, by the way. It is a choice with respect to that sin. And yet at the same time, we also recognize that this is not only a choice that destroys the drunkard, but that very often the drunkard even realizes this. They know it's harmful. They know their drinking is destroying their lives, and yet they can't seem to muster the strength to break away from this sin. This is why society has taken to calling them alcoholics instead of drunkards. It's partly intended to communicate that this isn't entirely a choice they make. It's a disorder. It's even become common to, to hear alcoholism referred to as a disease, not a sin. And that matters because you don't blame someone for having a disease, right? You don't say to the cancer patient, stop it, stop having cancer, because cancer isn't something they choose. It's something that happens to them. That's what's communicated whenever sin is referred to as a disorder or disease. It's saying that the person is a passive participant in the event. And while we may not always agree with the terminology, what I think we can agree on 
is that that's how firm a grip sin can sometimes have on a person's life. It can grab hold of them so firmly that even after they recognize how destructive it is to their life, they still have trouble freeing themselves from its power. How do you refer to someone in that condition? Are they free? Technically, the drunkard is free to go down to the liquor store or the bar and buy another drink. No one's stopping them. But are they free? Think about it in terms of what Paul talks about in Romans 7 as he talks about this inability uh, to break himself free from his sin while he recognizes that the law is good and right in his mind. Did Paul think of himself as a free man in that instance? No, he says, this is Romans 7, 21 through 25. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You don't look at the alcoholic and say of him, now there goes a free man. Just look at him indulging his desires. Just look at him getting to drink as much as he wants. You don't say that with respect to the alcoholic, do you? No, you look at him and you pity him. Because while technically he's doing what he wants, meaning no one is externally restricting his behavior, at the same time he's enslaved to his own desires. It's sort of like what we've said recently in Sunday school class with respect to the state, with respect to human government. Freedom for a nation doesn't mean the absence of law. It means the freedom to create one's own system of laws. It means the freedom to self-govern. Well, so it is with the individual. Freedom is expressed in self-control. The inability to free oneself of those behaviors that are destructive to oneself, that's not freedom. It's just another form of enslavement. And this seems to be the point that Paul is making here in verse 12. Yes, in Christ, we may really have the freedom to do what we want. Since when God looks upon us, He sees not our works, but the works of Christ alone. Still, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should act on that freedom by sinning, since sin really and truly is destructive. It works counter to the Christian's desires. Sexual immorality, as Paul is about to explain, undermines the Christian's true desires and in ways that at this point the Corinthians are simply unable to understand. So to go back to sin, when it's so obviously harmful, that isn't to express freedom. It's simply to express another form of bondage. This is what Paul means when he says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. He's saying that, yes, he could engage in sexual immorality. The grace of Christ is that sufficient. Still, he's not going to allow sin to so dominate and rule over him so as to drag him back into these behaviors that are so clearly harmful and which therefore he does not want to do. True freedom is expressed in self-control, self-rule. It's expressed in not being dominated by these inner desires that mean to do us harm, but by instead being able to direct your conduct towards that which you truly desire, towards that which you know is truly beneficial and wise. Now, I take the time to say all this for two reasons. First, these two statements here in verse 12 are absolutely critical to understanding the nuance of what Paul is going to lay out in the rest of this passage. We're not going to get into the, to the theology of sexual immorality just yet. There's just too much to cover at the moment to hit this passage in one week. But in our next message, we're going to dive into the rest of this passage. And what we're going to see throughout this text is that Paul is going to explain that the reason why we should not engage in sexual immorality is because our bodies belong to Christ. 
There's a bit more nuance than just that, as we'll see. But the basic idea is that Christ bought our bodies, and so we should therefore use our bodies to glorify God. He says in verse 13, for instance, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He's going to say in verses 19 and 20, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in, in your body. Look, if you read those statements in isolation, then I think you'd probably think that Paul is saying Christ owns you, and so now, therefore, you have the obligation to do exactly as he says. Essentially, he'd be saying, do this because God doesn't like it. You understand what I mean there? The point is that we'd be avoiding sexual immorality because it's something that God finds displeasing. And that would sound fine, except Paul starts off this entire section by saying, I mean, technically, yeah, I could sin, I guess, but why would you? Basically, he affirms that from the Christian's perspective, such action wouldn't necessarily affect the Christian status before God, but then he says, still, it's not profitable. It's not wise. So why would you allow yourself to be dominated by that desire? In other words, and listen closely here, he makes this about the Corinthians. And that's the thing that's going to continue, by the way. For instance, look down at verse 18. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. He says, avoid sexual sin. But why? Look there. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral sins against what? His own body. You see that? He's framing this sin in terms of the impact it makes on the Christian. The problem with this sin ultimately comes back to us in this text. Like the reason why we should avoid sexual immorality, even though grace covers all our sin, is because regardless of whether or not we've been forgiven, it's still bad for us. That shades the entire meaning of this passage. If I could put it this way, what does this tell us about what Paul is assuming about the Corinthians when he says... The body is not meant for sexual immorality before the Lord, and the Lord for the body. What does it tell us about what Paul is assuming when he says, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body? It's telling us that when Paul says this, he's assuming that what the Corinthians truly desire is to glorify Christ. That's what they want. And that shouldn't surprise us. We learned over the past couple of weeks that while the Corinthians once were these people committed to all these various types of sins, they are such no longer, right? Since they've been washed, they've been sanctified, they've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, they have a new set of desires, right? So now what Paul is assuming is that what the Corinthians really and truly want is to glorify God. And at least some of them have taken to this idea that sexual immorality is immaterial to that purpose. That it's no different than eating food. That's what this statement, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food means. It's this apparent mantra they're saying that what we eat doesn't really matter in the end, which we're going to see in the rest of the letter. Paul actually agrees with that mantra. <laughs> And they're using that mantra to justify their indulgence of their sexual desires. It's really no different than what you might encounter in the world today. They're going, the Corinthians are saying, look, this is just physical. This is just biological. It's no different than eating. And they're interpreting that to mean that it really doesn't matter what they do with their body. That's all coming from a serious flaw in their theology. There are some theological parts missing that are leading to that conclusion. And what Paul is about to show them is that they couldn't be more wrong in that line of thinking. This is material to their desire to glorify God because through the resurrection, Jesus has purchased their bodies as well as their souls. The Corinthians were missing that part of the equation. We'll see later in chapter 15. They had some pretty twisted understandings of the resurrection. And that's leading them to think that sexual sin doesn't really matter to God. Paul's point is to tell them, yes, it does matter to God. But the reason he's telling them that is because what matters to God matters to the Corinthians. They really do want to live a life that's pleasing to him, and they don't understand 
how sexual immorality undermines that. In other words, when Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are helpful, he's really just saying, but not all things honor Christ. He's more or less assuming that they want to honor Christ, not that they must honor Christ, but that they want to honor Christ. And he's telling them sexual immorality is counter to that. It's not going to give you what you want. It's going to hinder your efforts to serve Christ. There's more going on here with the body than you realize. Contrary to what you may think, Christ has redeemed your body too, and so you can glorify God with your body. Or if I could state this one other way, this phrase, you were bought with a price, it refers not to their obligation to honor Christ, but to the fact that Christ has redeemed their body too. Or to put it still another way, the emphasis in glorify God in your body is on the body part of that statement, not the glorified part. The Corinthians don't understand that the body has been set free from sin too and that it has a role to play in their efforts to honor God. Again, this is one reason why I spend time trying to clarify what Paul is doing here in verse 12. I do it because it helps us unlock what Paul is trying to do in the theology that's about to follow. What he's about to show us is that what we do with our bodies does matter to God. We are not solely spiritual entities. We are not solely souls. We are made up of both soul and body. Christ has redeemed both. And so now what we do with our bodies matters in our efforts to glorify God. And I tell you, it only gets more interesting from there. I'm really looking forward to that part of the discussion. It's going to be fun as we get into the rest of this text. The second reason why I spend all this time trying to explain what Paul is really saying in verse 12 is because I think there's this tendency in Christians to revert back to this notion of obligation, of law, that the reason why we obey is simply because we're supposed to. And this thought actually hinders our sanctification and growth in Christ. When Paul says in Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This is partly what he's referring to. This comes right on the heels of this passage I just read from Romans 7 a moment ago. And Paul's point in Romans 7 is to say that while the law is good, it only incites the sinful flesh to sin. And so what changes in the Christian? It's that in Christ, they're given the Spirit of God who changes the heart of the Christian so that they want to obey God. And so now no longer is obedience a must-to. It's a get-to. The Spirit has set us free from the power of the law in this sense. If you can think about this, if you've ever spent time training for something that's hard, which is more effective at maintaining your motivation to keep fighting? Is it obligation? Is it the notion that you must train or else? Or is it the promise of what will happen as a result of your training? Is it the belief that your training will produce some good that you desire? Listen, I can tell you from experience, it's the second of these. If I'm running, for instance, which personally I sort of hate, I don't really like to run. If I'm running and all I'm thinking of is I must run, perhaps because it's the responsible thing to do or something like that, maybe because I have it on my calendar and I need to check it off my list, I'll tell you I have a hard time finishing the course. But if I'm running because I'm preparing for a race, and I want to put up a good time, or if I'm running because I think it'll make me healthy and I think it feels good to be healthy, there's benefits to it, then I can find motivation to keep going. Or if you want to think about it like this, which type of boss, right, generally gets the more out of his or her employees? Is it the one who yells and screams and threatens? Or is it the one who inspires and encourages? The eller may get a kind of obedience, right, for a little while. But the one who inspires their employees generally gets more. And that's because people are far, far more inclined to persevere through a difficult task when they want to. And typically because there's some promise of reward at the end of it than when they merely have to. 
And it's no different for the Christian in their service to Christ. The Christian will go further in their service to Christ when they want to serve Him than when they merely have to. In fact, the Scripture goes even further than this. It says in in, uh, Hebrews 11.6 that, quote, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever, whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. It is impossible for the Christian to please God, to draw near to Him without the hope that there's going to be some kind of reward for their efforts. Just like in a race, there's the sinful flesh, right, which resists the desire to do good, which cries out against the runner in their efforts, you know, and, and and it makes their labor difficult. And then there's the law, which urges the runner to push through, through commands for obedience, And then there's the Spirit who inspires the runner with the promise of reward. Now, of course, this isn't the promise of some base reward. As we're seeing in this passage, the Corinthians are motivated uh, by the desire to serve Christ, right? That's a desire that can only come through the Spirit as He quickens the heart of the Christian to love Christ, meaning that's not a reward that a strictly natural man is going to find very appealing. But for those who have been washed by the Spirit, for those who have been sanctified by the Spirit, those who have been set aside in Uh, the name of Christ, for service to Christ, this is incredibly motivating. And this is Paul's approach to sexual immorality. He's not telling the Corinthians, you must do this. He's reminding them, you get to do this. Friends, this is really such an important point. And as it relates to the Christians fighting against sexual immorality in particular, obviously this is so important that I didn't want to move on into the theology that shapes Paul's explanation here without getting this down first. I was very concerned that the theology of this text would swallow up the perspective that Paul is trying to offer us right here. And this perspective is so important. So let me say this clearly. If you struggle with sexual sin and the only thing that's motivating your effort to be faithful in this area is your sense of obligation, you will fail. If your desire for sex is not replaced with a superior desire for something else, for Christ and for the riches that are found in knowing and serving Him, then you will fail. Your flesh is going to put pressure on you, and it will put pressure on you, and it will put pressure on you, and with no counter-pressure to push back, no other desire to drown out and overcome those desires, eventually you will fail. You have to instead look at your fight with sexual sin in the way that Paul frames it here. You need to see it as something that's unhelpful, something that's unprofitable, and then flee from it out of a desire to not be dominated by something that means to crush you and keep you from your reward. Do you understand? It can't just be negative. It can't just be do not commit adultery. It must be positive. It must be glorify God with your body or else you will fail. And I could go on and on at this point. I feel like I say this often. We could look at 2 Peter 1, for instance, and how it's the precious and very great promises that make us partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We could look at the chain of qualities that Peter supplies there, which begins with faith and ends with love. We could continue to run through Hebrews 11 and discuss how faith propelled the saints of the Old Testament to obedience. We could even go to 1 John 5 and recall how, quote, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Ephesians 4 and the put-off, put-on dynamic that we see there, I could really dwell on this subject for quite a while. In fact, I feel like I bring it up often, so often perhaps that you're tired of hearing me talk about it. But understand, I, I do it both because it's so very, very easy to forget and so very, very important in your sanctification and growth in Christ. 
Because we have this innate desire for sin inside of us due to our fallen flesh, it's very easy to fall into this thinking that sin really is desirable. And so therefore, the only logical reason why we would obey God is because we must. Sin is good, it's good for us, we think, but God doesn't like it, so we shouldn't do it. I know we wouldn't say that. We never say, for instance, that sin is good for us. We know better, but we often think it in our heart. And as long as you think this way, sin lies close at hand. The very first step to defeating sin is removing the temptation. And I don't just mean that in the sense of escaping the source of temptation, though, of course, I would agree that we should do that. Rather, what I mean is that we must counter the deception behind the temptation. Sin is not good for you. It is not profitable. It is not wise. And so why would you want to be dominated by it? Again, this is why I'm focusing on verse 12 this week. I do it because the perspective you have on sin will have a dramatic impact on your ability to live a life that glorifies God. And again, I don't want that point to get swallowed up by the theology that's about to follow, because there's some really interesting theology that's about to follow. But you need to understand as we move on into these points, this all has to do with our desire to glorify God as Christians. And the idea is that it's our love for God, really the gratitude that we express as a result of our salvation that fuels our sexual purity. As Christians, we abstain from sexual immorality, not because we have to, but because we get to. We get to glorify God with our bodies. We're not denying ourselves physical pleasure so much as we are claiming our sanctification unto Christ. So to return to this question that we asked towards the middle of this discussion, what about grace? Why should the Christian turn away from sexual sin in spite of the fact that the obligation to obey has, in a sense, been removed, or I think you could say fulfilled in Christ? Well, it's because what they have become, what the Christian has become, means that it's no longer good for them to engage in sexual morality. It's no longer wise for them. It's no longer profitable. There are these new desires that dominate their life now, and sexual immorality works counter to the fulfillment of those desires. How does that work? Why is sexual immorality unprofitable for the Christian? Why does it work counter to this desire to glorify God? Paul provides the answer to this question in the rest of this passage, and we're going to explore the answer to that in part two of this message uh, in two weeks. Actually, it might be three weeks. I'm going to be out of town next week, so it won't be next week. It might be the week after. I think I may have a different <laughs> thought in mind for that week, um, so it might be three weeks. But next time we get into this passage, we're going to deal uh, with this question. And this is going to be an incredibly important discussion because in this we discover some of the fuel that should power the Christian's resistance to sexual sin. So if you struggle with sexual sin, or even if you don't, either way, I'd strongly encourage you to be here for that discussion as it will provide us with some valuable insight into what is a very prevalent issue in our culture, and I think we can say really all of human society. In the meantime, let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Let's pray.